Coming up, it's philosophy talk. Darwin took us forward to a hilltop from where we could look back and see the way from which we came. But for this insight and for this knowledge, we must abandon our faith. Does faith obscure reason? We must not abandon faith. Faith is the most important thing. Does reason obscure faith? Why do you deny the one faculty of man that raises him above the other creatures of the earth? The power of his brain to reason. Yes, I gotta have faith. Do faith and reason inevitably conflict? Our guest is Nancy Murphy from the Fuller Theological Seminary. Faith, reason, and science. Coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Uh, except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Our topic today is a trinity, faith, reason, and science. Faith on the one hand, science on the other, reason charged with making up its mind between them, I guess. Science and religion have been in conflict over the centuries, Ken, but should they have been? Is conflict inevitable, or is it inevitably based on misunderstanding? We'll tackle that question in three parts. First, we'll look at some moments of conflict between faith and science over the ages. Then we'll ask whether such conflicts are to be expected or whether there can be a reconciliation between faith and science. Finally, we'll consider what it all means for us in uh, modern life and modern culture. John, we seem to be living in an age of conflict between science and religion. I mean, some religious organizations are fighting the way history and biology are taught in the public schools, while some prominent thinkers, scientists like Richard Dawkins or philosophers like uh, Daniel Dennett, are writing scathing books against religion. I mean, Dawkins says that if you bring give a kid a religious upbringing, that's a form of child abuse. Now. Given that science and religion give us conflicting theories of, of the similar phenomena, history or biology, isn't this sort of conflict inevitable and predictable? Well, Ken, I, I'm not so sure that it is. Uh, there's two sides. Some historians maintain that in the Middle Ages, if it weren't for the notion of God as a rational, all-powerful being that designed this whole place with mathematics and things like that, without those ideas, there never would have been modern science. Science owes its faith in an intelligible universe to religion. Kepler, Descartes, Newton, all those guys, even Galileo, seemed to be motivated in part by the idea that in doing science, they were understanding God. Yeah, reason seek, faith-seeking understanding. But, you know, Galileo was the guy that the Pope put under house arrest for refusing to say that the... You know, Earth is still, he said, uh, Copernicus got it right. The Earth goes around the sun. The, the, the Christianity didn't like that idea. Well, there was definitely a conflict there. But what was it between? Was it really between science and religion? Or was it between the Pope's sort of backward interpretation of religion and Galileo's more flexible interpretation? Well, I mean, if you were religious uh, in those <clears throat> days, especially, you could, you could be sympathetic with the Pope's understanding, even if you thought maybe the Pope went too far. I mean, the Bible makes it sound like the Earth is the center of things and that the sun moves across the sky and the stars move. There's nothing about the Earth rotating on its axis or orbiting about the sun, not in my my Old Testament, at least, the Pope thought that what Galileo said contradicted the revealed word of God as laid down in the Old Testament. And looking at it superficially, the Pope was right. 
Well, yeah, but let's not look at it superficially. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of religious Christians uh, and Jews uh, and Muslims that take a less than literal interpretation of the Bible, particularly of the Old Testament, and the same with other religions in their ancient holy texts. I mean, the Old Testament is old, right? It was written for people who would have just been confused if you trotted out uh, uh, Newton's Laws of Motion or the Copernican Theory. So, of course, it was written in terms that they could understand. So I, I don't think Galileo example shows any inevitable conflict between science and a properly flexible religious perspective. Well, you know, okay, takes, uh, let's move ahead a few centuries and take the theory of evolution. I mean, by now, the vast majority majority of scientists think that the theory of evolution is fundamental to biology, as, as fundamental as, you know, the Earth moving and rotating is, is to astronomy. Nothing makes sense without it, but there are lots of religious people who think, oh my God, how could this be? It's so threatening. Well, it, it does seem to be harder for religion to absorb evolution, that is, at least for Christianity to absorb evolution, than it was to for it to absorb Newton's physics or Galileo's astronomy. After all, Evolution seems to have direct consequences for what it means to be human. The idea that we're all descended from monkeys, or I guess uh, we have a common ancestor more accurately, has been a hard one for Christianity to follow, swallow ever, ever since Darwin came up with it. It certainly doesn't fit with the sequence of events in the creation story as outlined in the Old Testament, and it doesn't fit with the idea that humans, unique among animals, have immortal souls. Still, it doesn't contradict the idea that humans have souls or that there's a God that could have, you know, intervened in the process of evolution to give them souls. And there are, are forms of religion, uh, even forms of Christianity, Ken, that don't insist on immortal, immaterial souls. You know, in some ways it was easier, I think, for Kepler, Newton, and Galileo to uh, reconcile faith and religion because religion, uh, science and religion, because religion was suffused the whole air that they breathe, and science was kind of a new kid on the block. These days, these more secular times, I, I think it's a bit harder. But, you know, there are scientists who have made incredible discoveries, first-ranked scientists, who still maintain a deep and abiding faith. And our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Stryker, talked with one of the most eminent of these. She files this report. Charles Towns won the Nobel Prize in 1964 for inventing the laser and its precursor, the maser. But he also won the Templeton Prize for his thinking on the compatibility of religion and science. The two prizes reflect the man. The UC Berkeley physics professor believes in God. Well, people, particularly in the past, have uh, thought they found conflicts between science and religion. Uh, that's never troubled me. I have never seen there's any strong conflicts between the two. Science was an attempt to understand how our universe works. Religion is an attempt to understand the purpose and the meaning of the universe, including human life. Well, now, if there's a purpose and a meaning, that must have something to do with how it works, and vice versa. So the two can uh, add to each other. Wait a minute. What about godless Richard Dawkins? Doesn't he embody the modern scientist? I would say Dawkins is a kind of a fundamentalist scientist. Just the way fundamentalist religious people think they know exactly what's right and nothing else is right. <laughs> and uh, I would say we must be open-minded. And most scientists are. And I believe, yes, there, you know, there may be a spiritual world. Could it be that some parts of physics, like all those dimensions we read about, might involve a bit of a leap of faith? Science is based on faith. People in science don't often recognize that clearly, but clearly it's based on faith. We make certain assumptions. You can never prove that your assumptions are correct. It's a matter of faith. 
And so science and religion both involve faith. And in some cases we have just fantastic faith about imagining what, what science may be telling us. Still, it's not easy for everyone to reconcile science and religion. Take the Big Bang, for example. Well, you know, the Big Bang, in a way, was uh, upsetting to scientists. Many scientists thought the universe has to always be here. They couldn't have been a beginning, whereas religion says, yes, there was a beginning. It was created. Well, now science has shown that there was a beginning. That's, again, a way that science is shedding some light on religion. Yes, there was a beginning of this universe. How and why did it start? We don't know. Towns says there isn't an inherent conflict between science and religion, even if the scientific world tries to prove or disprove the existence of God. I think it's quite okay to try to understand and prove or disprove, see what evidence there is for the existence of a spiritual being. I think that's very appropriate for us to try to understand as well as we can, just as we try to understand science. Again, let me say, we never prove anything completely. We never disprove anything completely. At 92 years of age, Towns is still trying to find answers to the mysteries of the universe. Well, I'm doing astrophysics now, and I find the stars, some stars change in size. They swell up and decrease in size about 30% in a year's time. Isn't it irrational to believe in both astrophysics and in God? No, I, think, I don't think it's irrational to believe in the God, just because uh, it's not irrational to believe in science. I spoke to Towns on a Monday. Did he go to church the day before? No, I didn't go to church. I took a hike out in the woods and saw a lot of the wonderful universe that <laughs> means a lot to me religiously. From the intersection of faith and science, I'm Polly Stryker. I'm John Perry. With me is Ken Taylor. Our guest today is Nancy Murphy. She's professor of philosophy at the Fuller Theological Seminary. She's co-author most recently of Did My Neurons Make Me Do It? Philosophical and Neurobiological Perspectives on Moral Responsibility and Free Will. Nancy, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you. I'd like to, do, to join you. Nancy, uh, uh, welcome to Philosophy Talk. You, you know, you, you're, you're unusual in at least two ways. Like, like Ken and I, you're a philosopher. But unlike us, you're, you're in a theological seminary, unusual even for philosophers. Tell us briefly about how you ended up on these paths. It's a bit of an ironic story. I went to UC Berkeley to study philosophy of science and uh, decided that, that I wanted to make a career change for two reasons. One is that I encountered uh, well-thought-out atheism for the first time in my life at Berkeley. And that raised the question for me as to whether it's possible to be a rational, philosophical person and also believe all of these things that I'd been taught as a Christian all of my life. So that became a much more existentially challenging issue than the rationality of science, which is what I'd been working on. But I also thought it would be good to get out of philosophy of science because not being a scientist myself, I thought I'm always going to have to be talking about the science secondhand. And I didn't want to be in that kind of precarious position. But I went to the Graduate Theological Union, which is just across the street from Berkeley, to pursue a doctorate in theology. Uh, some people noticed that I had some expertise in scientific methodology and then theological methodology, and I began to get invitations to participate in conferences on the relationship between theology and science. Wow. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon I was doing that with uh, a very large uh, um, 
percentage of my professional time. Well, Nancy, uh, it's, uh, it's, so, it's, it's great that you've done that because, you know, I tell our undergraduate philosophy majors that philosophers can do anything. They can be lawyers, they can be doctors, they can be merchants, they can be thieves, and I'm going to add theologians to that, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but let's go back to that question that bothered you at Berkeley. Now, now, now Professor Towns has just told us that we can believe in up-to-date modern astrophysics and still be religious, and that's just cool. But how about evolution? I mean, how about... Doesn't evolution tell us that, that, that humans are rational because they've got brains that evolve from slime over centuries in complicated ways that are all made up of neurons and synapses and stuff like that? And doesn't Christianity tell us that we're rational because God gave us an immortal soul that's immaterial and doesn't have anything to neurons to do with neurons except maybe some correlation? I mean, what, how do you reconcile those? Yeah, one is right. Uh, the science and the dualism of Christianity is wrong. I agree. <laughs> Actually, well, let's move on a, to the next one. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Beginning at least 100 years ago, biblical scholars and critical church historians started asking the question of whether body-soul dualism was part of original Jewish and Christian teaching. And there's almost 100% consensus right now that uh, the Hebrew scriptures are not dualistic. It's based on bad translations. There are still some conflicts among conservative Christians as to whether the New Testament requires Christians to be dualists, but my own view is that it doesn't. Uh, those authors simply weren't interested in that question. So this is a vast oversimplification, but as, the, as Christianity was spreading into the Mediterranean world with all of those philosophical systems, m most of which were dualistic, Christianity picked up dualism as it went along, and it's been unnecessary baggage ever since. Well, uh, unnecessary baggage, I mean, that, that sounds very good, but you're talking about St. Augustine, uh, yep. about the whole Middle Ages, <laughs> right. about, about yes. the understanding of what, what Christ was all about that has shaped millennia of Christianity. You're just going to reject all of that? Yeah, oh. they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really interesting. That's, I mean, it's the, again, this is a, it's not, maybe it's not there in the Bible, but the Catholic Church says the content of revolution is given by the Bible, of uh, uh, revelation is given by the Bible plus tradition, right? Because the Bible on its own needs lots and lots of interpreting. And you, yeah, yeah. Ken went to Notre Dame, so his views about, uh, about this are, are, are somewhat revealed. Yeah. So, I <laughs> yes. mean, what do you think about that? Are you just rejecting the whole tradition, uh, Christian, Christian Catholic tradition of interpreting, uh, you know? Well, I think it's possible some of them were wrong. I'm, I don't hold to the inerrancy of the Catholic Church. I used to be Catholic myself. But um, I've since switched to a, a sort of uh, primitive Baptist sort of religion that uh, puts much more stock in trying to get clear on what the New Testament was teaching. And if we find discrepancies between New Testament teaching and later church pronouncements, uh, the New Testament ought to win out. We're going to take you up on that a, a bit and explore this a little bit more after a break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're discussing faith, reason, and science, that holy trinity, with Nancy Murphy from the Fuller Theological Seminary. We're talking about conflicts between science and religion, uh, apparent or real. Do you think religious belief can accommodate the scientific worldview? Do you think that religion and science simply deal with different spheres so there's really no conflict? Or do you think there is a conflict? So one side's right, the other's wrong. Join us by calling toll-free 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Faith, reason, and the space between them. Plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Knowing that you lied, 
twilight fire Still I look to find a reason to believe Do we need reasons to believe, or is faith beyond reason? We're discussing science and religion. What do you think? Can a dedicated scientist be a devout Christian, or a Muslim, or a Jew, or a Buddhist, or a Unitarian? I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Tell us your thoughts. The toll-free number, 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or you can email us, comments, at philosophytalk.org. Our guest is Nancy Murphy from the Fuller Theological Seminary. Nancy, you were saying some interesting things about uh, how you reconcile science and religion, and it struck me that you kind of concede in some way the primacy of science. You know, you say, well, if the theory of evolution and neural, neuroscience tell us we don't have immaterial cells, then I've better find a way of reading the, my religious documents that are consistent with that. If the, theory of, if, the, if, the, if the theory of cosmology tells me, you know, the earth was created, the universe was created in a big bang, I better find a way of interpreting my religious doctrine to, uh, to be consistent with that. Those are kind of saving interpretations of religion. Desperate, somebody might say, saving interpretations. I mean, if you're going to do that, why, why bother with these old texts and all that stuff anyway? I mean, just take the word of science to begin with. I think that w what's important about the old texts is not that they ever intended to be a complete account of uh, what people believe or think. They're primarily talking about how we should live together. And But what's happened in the meantime, of course, is worldviews have grown up in the different periods, ancient, medieval, early modern, contemporary. Uh, material from those texts has been worked into those worldviews, but all of the rest of human knowledge, however it stood in, those, in that period of time, was also worked into it. And so much of what gets interpreted as conflict between religion and science is actually conflict between uh, an older worldview, which had religious components, but also old knowledge, we now have a new worldview being developed, and uh, the interesting task is to ask how can we incorporate that which is true and that which is important from the old texts into this new worldview. But, but, but Nancy, you make it sound like, like Christianity and the, and, and the New Testament is basically a matter of ethics. Now, a lot of people have said that. I think Thomas Jefferson thought something like that and so forth. But, you know, if, if, you, if you got out of the seminary and were actually— interacting with 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 Christians uh, wouldn't you find that that they really believe in heaven and hell that they want the comfort that they're going to meet their dead relatives and loved ones in some future state that there's going to be a better world and aren't some of those ideas found in the New Testament doesn't Jesus talk about those things Yes, definitely. And you've done a really good job of putting your finger on uh, a lot of the important issues. Uh, belief in God, belief in a special res um, um, relation between Jesus of Nazareth and that God, promise of a future life, but not promise of an immortal soul, promise of resurrected bodies, which is quite a different idea. How, uh, how, that, how, do, how do you see resurrected bodies? I mean, just... just you know, philosophically, what what happens at resurrection? But, but let, let me interject first. <laughs> so promise of a res, re, resurrected body, however we understand that, it seems to me that your philosophical interpretation of that, which you're going to tell us in a little bit, you're kind of dedicated to it being consistent with whatever science reveals, right? So if that way, it's like, it's like your your notion of a resurre resurrected body is, uh, is immune 
to the revo- the resolutions, uh, the re- revelations of science, because you can say, well, science is going to reveal something, and I'm going to go interpret this so that it's consistent with what science reveals, so I don't have any problem. That seems like your methodology. Do I well, rem- remember that it was the biblical critics a hundred years before all of these developments in neuroscience who said that the original uh, Christian Hebrew texts did not teach body-soul dualism. And so it's not that Christians are backing away from dualism because of science. We backed away from dualism because of, of better readings of our own texts. Now, when you get to, you, when you get to resurrection, this is an area that where science is not going to be able to tell us anything. Because what we're talking about is a transformed creation that is so radically transformed that the science that describes this world is no longer going to apply. And so all we know about resurrection comes from the various and conflicting pictures of what Jesus was like after his resurrection. It's uh, intentional that those pictures conflict because there is no literal way to describe what a resurrected person is going to be like. Okay, Nancy, so that, that's very helpful. So it would be wrong to look at your Christianity as just a slight gloss on science with some ethical principles. There really is a, a part of it that says there's a lot to the world that science doesn't tell us about. Exactly. Okay. Uh, we're, you're t- listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing uh, the unholy trinity of faith, reason, and science. Well, part holy, part unholy. Uh, you can join this conversation by calling 1-800-525-9917 or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. And we have James in San, Fr- San Francisco on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, James. My question is this. You're focusing more on Christianity than you are world religions. Uh, is uh, Christianity the only religion that you have contrast with faith uh, in your science? I'd like to hear more discussion with other world religions other than Christianity. Okay. Nancy, what do you think about that? Well, you would have to get somebody who knows a lot more than I do in order to have that kind of conversation. There are such uh, radical differences uh, uh, between the religions, and I would even have to know a lot more about the variations within each of those religions in order to be able to say anything intelligent. I can say maybe two or three intelligent, informed sentences about Judaism, and maybe one or two uh, intelligent and informed sentences about Islam, but I can't go any farther. Well, I, I just want to say a little bit that I, I once had a very interesting conversation with the Dalai Lama about somewhat intri- uh, similar things and the whole idea uh, of reincarnation in Tibetan Buddhism. And he, in a way, sounded very much like you. He thought there was a take on the whole thing uh, that involved uh, certain dimensions of physical reality that science, at least Western science, hadn't yet told us about, but in the end wasn't in conflict with it. So I think... I think uh, all three of us, I think, are, are none of us are scholars about world religions, but I think in all of them there's a similar uh, distinction between uh, ways of interpreting them that are uh, in conflict with science and ways of interpreting them that aren't. So uh, I think that's right, and we've done a show on Zen, and we're uh, we're going to do a show on Islamic philo- religion and philosophy. We did a show on on Judaism and Jewish philosophy, and you should you should consult that for some of that. But let me one thing that some people say, Nancy, against religion is. They point to the diversity of religions. They point to all this stuff, and they think there's no way to settle any dispute between these different competing religions except by appeal to faith. It's outside of religion, outside of reason. So all these faith disputes are beyond reason, and that's kind of an argument against uh, taking them seriously in some people's view. What do you you think about that? 
Well, I have two things to say. Uh, one very interesting development in science is the cognitive science of religion. And if um, people like Pascal Boyer and uh, his colleagues are correct, uh, he can explain why certain uh, types of religious ideas would arise naturally, given the way human brains have evolved to work. And that provides um, a very nice interpretation of a lot of the multiplicity. But you're right. If there were no way to settle the disagreements, then the whole theological enterprise would be incredibly boring. But I personally believe that it's possible for human beings, uh, if they're willing to be quiet and to listen, to actually receive communication from God. Uh, we need to do that in communities because we're so prone to self-delusion. But I believe that if we faithfully sought God in prayer, uh, asking for the input of the Holy Spirit to help us uh, um, uh, distinguish between uh, correct and incorrect teachings, I believe there would be a possibility of convergence uh, among these various religions toward some uh, uh, shared truths. Let, let's uh, see what some more of our callers think. Michael uh, in San Pablo is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Michael. Hi, thanks for your show. I love it. Well, we love you too. So what's your comment or question? <laughs> Here goes, yes. Uh, a couple things. First, science has its limitations. If you go back 200 years and we were doing the same conversation based on the all-knowing science and religion and its faith, um, we would have a version of science which, which had really little grip on what we currently know. And much of what was, so to speak, fact would be just hogwash. So too, 200 years from now, most of what, or much of what we regard as, as just the way in science is going to get rethought if you follow the pattern of history, pretty certainly rethought. So before we make a god or a dogma or a faith of science, we might consider its history, uh, you know, even with its reproducibility factor, when we thought the world was flat, we had all this reproducible evidence, people who went too far to see always didn't return. Uh, for, <laughs> but, you know. Michael, Michael, you're making a very good point, but I don't see why it's not a point in favor of science, because one of the things that science says is through the methods of scientific inquiry, what we are going to do is revise and overthrow and ever shape our beliefs not by stuff we antecedently believe, but by how the world is. It's hard to do that. It's hard to shape your beliefs by how the world is. You often get it wrong, but there's a truth out there that we're dedicated to discovering and revising our beliefs in the light of that. And that's what the scientific method is all about. It's all about the overthrow of dogma and received wisdom and, and old archaic formations. So why isn't this that in is, favor of science? Ah, but this is, this is exactly the distinction. The inquiry process, you name three things, science, religion, and faith, oh no, faith, what was it, faith, science, and reason. Um, the faith part is on one side, you could have faith in science, and you were really putting science in the faith category. What you just described is the ongoing inquiry. In fact, it's the antithesis of faith. It's doubt. And in fact, science might be kind of a religion of doubt. It, I will, I will continue to ask rather than believe even the most compelling evidence. Yeah, but I mean, you got to distinguish between faith and what. Now, as I understand Nancy's view, and I'll shut up in a minute and let faith her, and exp her expand on it, there, there's a matter of faith in particular details, and uh, uh, the understanding of Christianity that Nancy's advocating 
uh, doesn't seem to be that. And then there's a faith in general principles. Science has a faith that the that the that the universe is going to make mathematical sense. Maybe Nancy has the faith that uh, the universe is going to make some kind of moral sense. Uh, why is why is one more rational than the other? We'll let Nancy talk now. <laughs> Nancy, what do you think? Well, one of the, part of the answer is just practical. We simply can't suspend our our belief in whatever seems to be correct to us now. It's um, wise in any sphere of knowledge to say, certainly what I believe now isn't perfect. Certainly there I should expect to be changes. I should expect to know things, uh, uh, more things, and to understand things better in the future. And future generations ought to understand things yet better than we do now. But practically speaking, you have to um, accept what is the accepted knowledge of your time. Uh, I teach my students to appreciate the historical development of philosophy and of theology. And then they, somebody always asks me, well, why do you bother to do it if you figure that it's going to be <laughs> improved on, if not even replaced in the future? And I say, I don't mind the fact that I'm going to be proven wrong in the future. I just want to have been usefully wrong. Right. Nancy, let me follow up a little on the interesting ideas you, you gave uh, kind of about well, what is philosophers might call the epistemology of of God. Let me, let me give you two analogies and see if either one fits. <clears throat> one analogy is, is we're, uh, we're living on, uh, on, a, on an island of, of deaf people. There have been such islands. People get along fine when they're deaf as long as they don't have talking people around to screw up their world for them. Uh, but maybe it turns out that we, that we do have a little bit of sense of hearing, and the, the ones who are calm and sit down and listen carefully on quiet days can hear things and make sense out of them. Uh, the others remain skeptical. So that's one analogy. The other analogy is our notion of a sense of humor. Some people seem to have a sense of humor. Some people don't. Some people just <laughs> get it. Some people don't. You can imagine the ones who don't saying, look, I've, got a, I've done a lot of experiments and I, I've dissected a lot of things. And I see what happens when you laugh. There's just this physical process and there's this input and some neurons go off. And then you laugh and you're just trying to give it a meaning that it doesn't have. And the, those of us who have a sense of humor would say, no, you just missed the point. Now, are either of those analogies helpful to your picture of how, how some people are able to know about God? I think, well, since I'm a physicalist, Clearly, if God is having any effect on us, God is having an effect on our brains. And I would not be at all surprised to find out that some people's brains uh, have the capacity to receive these subtle impulses, uh, uh, the still small voices, etc., and others don't. Uh, but I don't think that that's terribly problematic because we're supposed to be working on these issues in community rather than as individuals. Uh, the lack of sense of humor, um, I have a harder time drawing an, an analogy there. But again, uh, if I don't have a sense of humor, I can still sit around and just enjoy the fact that the, the folks around me uh, are getting the jokes and just enjoy the fact that they're having so much fun. Or if you're Richard Dawkins, you get really resentful about the fact that they <laughs> enjoy, the, enjoy the jokes and are having so much fun, I guess. So we got some more callers on the line. Albert in, Liver in Livermore. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Albert. Yes. Uh, my feeling is that it is very easy to be self-deluded, and I believe that a good part of religious belief is self-delusion, because they do believe because they want to believe. That doesn't make it correct in, the, in truth, if I could use that term, or ultimate truth. Uh, I recall at age 12 or 13, 
I was in the subway going to <clears throat> my high school and thinking, oh, I wish I could believe in God. And it came to me that it made no sense. That's one issue, the issue of God. It, it is a, I, don't, I think it's an irrational belief. It may be comforting. The other part is religion themselves. Religion has learned from science, but not vice versa. And the religious viewpoint has gradually changed. Say the earth is flat, the earth is round, etc., etc., because of science. So there's very little change in religion except what comes from science and an understanding of what the human mind is like. But that was study of science. Uh, Albert, uh, before we go to break, let just let me ask you a quick question of clarification. Sure. When you think God is irrational, or belief in God is irrational, is that because you think the concept of God is somehow contradictory, doesn't make sense, and incoherent? Or is it just you think we don't have enough evidence? Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's a possibility, but we just don't have enough evidence. Wh which was it impressed you on the subway that well, day? Well, it's kind of fuzzy, in a way, <laughs> because it made no sense because looking for a first cause, it seems to me, one can always ask, well, what's the cause beyond that first cause? I mean, it becomes a, an infinite do-loop. Uh, Therefore, you could say, yes, there was some kind of beginning. Einsteinian view of God is certainly not what we normally talk about as God. Okay. Albert, you're okay. raising Thanks, some Albert. interesting points, and I want Nancy to have a chance to address them after, uh, after our break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing faith, reason, and science with Nancy Murphy from the Fuller Theological Seminary. What does it mean? At the end of every hard earned day, we will find some reason to believe. The reasons we believe in the space between science and religion. Does a person need both? Can people be happy without a religious take on the cosmos? Could you be? Does religion provide a kind of solace or meaning unavailable in the cold universe of science? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Nancy Murphy from the Fuller Theological Seminary. Nancy, I want to go back to that last caller who was kind of saying a lot of things, but one was that belief in God was kind of a form, often a form of self-deception. People want to believe it. They believe it against the evidence of reason. And then he sort of questioned all arguments for the existence of God. Now, I have a question for you. This is for you. Do you believe in God because you think there's some good argument, you know, like the cosmo, I mean, like the ontological argument or whatever, all these different arguments, you know, in Aquinas and others, you, because you think there's some good argument that any rational being should accept or for some other reason, for some, in some other, from some other motivation or source? Of belief the main reason that I that I believe comes from my personal experience but of course me telling uh, a non-believer about my personal experience does not stand up evidentially so I think that my capacity to provide uh, a philosophical intelligent rationale for belief in God is very very limited uh, so I agree very much with the caller uh, well then where does that put us then so we have a world uh, a community of believers surrounded by a world of non-believers, and the non-believers look at the believers and say, what's up with you folks, right? And the believers uh, look at the non-believers and say, you just don't get it, you just don't get it. And this seems like, I don't know, this seems like uh, a recipe for perpetual misunderstanding. Well, uh, back in the early modern period, both Pascal and Montaigne said that if you want to find out whether religion is true, give it a try. You've actually got to... to uh, 
uh, engage in the practices for a while and then see what happens. Well, it's a bit like Galileo and the Pope, you might say. I mean, Galileo wanted the Pope to look through his telescope, and the Pope said, I'm not going to look through that telescope. Who knows what might happen if I look through the telescope? Now, you're saying, well, if people just sat around in groups, kind of uh, sounds a little Quakerish to me, and tried to be very quiet and listen to the voice of God, they'd hear it. Uh, maybe some people won't hear it. Maybe some people have some kind of cognitive deficit, but a lot of them would. But you're not going to get anywhere until you get people to 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 do that. Well, uh, so, so I, maybe that's the situation. This is complicated, though. I really, and I want to pressure you a little bit, Nancy. So, you know, some people think we should have uh, respect and tolerance for one another's uh, uh, beliefs. But you know, like I, I don't. If you believe still in the face of modern science that the Earth was flat, or if you believe that the uh, Earth was the center of the solar system, in the face face of modern science, I would have no respect for your belief. I would no no have no respect for the form of bu- uh, bu- uh, belief formation that gave rise to those beliefs in you, right? Now, why? Let me ask the question. Given what you say about we can't, you know, there's no your experience is not evidentially sufficient for the non-believer, and there's no rational philosophical argument. Why should a non-believer have any sort of respect for re- religious belief? Uh, the same reason that I should have respect for a non-believer. But if that person really wants to know, then he or she should join what seems to be the most sensible of religious groups, uh, live their life for a while, um, look at the world through their eyes for a while, um, give it a chance. So, Nancy, uh, we live in an in a age, and I don't mean a big age, I mean a little age, where there's been all these uh, uh, books by really sometimes quite brilliant people like Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett that are very negative about religion. I, I don't know if you've read all of them or any of them, but do you have a general take on what's going on and what's your reaction to it? I'm um, religiously making myself read through them all. I've read <laughs> Dennett and Dawkins so far, and I'm working on Christopher Hitchens. And I'm actually going to assign uh, Dawkins's book to my uh, Master of Divinity class uh, next quarter. Um, of course, there's a lot of overstatement. There's a lot of um, uh, unnecessarily negative uh, descriptions of religion. But he, uh, my students need to know the way religion looks to people from the outside. I'm going to tell you about another book. It's called Philosophers Without Gods, Meditations on Atheism and the Secular Life. It's edited by Louise Anthony. Uh, I, I don't want to be uh, trumpeting my own horn here because I have an essay in that uh, book. And I, it's, a ver- it's much more sober and open-minded, but intensely philosophical uh, defense of atheism and sometimes attacks on religion than any than either Dawkins or Dennett. So you might think about assigning your students that that collection of essays. It's a, well, some brilliant essays in that book. That's probably better philosophy, but I, I want them to get a sense of the animosity uh, directed at us uh, Christians. They now, need to know that. Yeah, you know, you know, the animosity directed at, at Christians from atheists, there is, there is that, and there seems to be a growing movement of that. But there's also animosity directed at atheists uh, from Christians. I mean, suppose that some guy, some person, man or woman, uh, ran for president and said, and they ask him, what's your faith? And the, and the candidate for president said, I'm, a, I'm an atheist, born and bred. Even if the person said, I'm an agnostic, born and bred. I think his chances of be, his or her chances of being elected president of the United of these United States in these times would be zero. Well, yeah, but I mean, uh, he would uh, he or she wouldn't necessarily have to put it 
that way. Well, I, know. I mean, they could say when I look on this vast universe and and think of all the mysteries of science and biology, I'm struck by my small finitude and and who knows what it all means. And I, yeah. I have a very spiritual side but, to me. But, but That's what they say. But there's a there's a certain kind of hostility toward atheism in our. You don't do you agree or disagree yes. with that? Oh, yes, there is. And that's why I want my students to understand how bad that makes the atheists feel. We are asking for hostility by not treating non-believers with the respect they deserve. Well, I don't know. I think a lot of atheists really think they're back in the uh, 18th century and get a lot of uh, get a lot of kudos for being way out on a limb and having courage when, you know, uh, aside from a couple of contexts like uh, uh, popular uh, political races uh, in in a lot of worlds, like the academic world, uh, yeah, you're right. not you're not stepping out on much of a limb. Well, that, that's true. But that's true. That's tr- I, let's go. I want to go back to this. Let's go back to the epistemology of respect again. It's, it's a slightly fancy term I just used, but <laughs> so we uh, have these different beliefs, and you're kind of you kind of have an implicit plea for respect between the believer and the non-believer. But again, if the if the believer can't see kind of why the non-believers don't get it. If the, if the non-believers can't see what's up with these folks cognitively, they're unresponsive to evidence. When I ask them for evidence, they give me these experiences and this stuff that only happens in the quiet moments in your study that they can't replicate or, or lead me into. Why should we respect? I mean, give me a deep reason why either the believer should respect the non-believer or the non-believer should respect the believer. Either way, give me a deep reason for that. I think that uh, 300 years ago, there uh, we... Uh, Westerners shared pretty much a common worldview. Some people began to question if you had to have God as part of that worldview. And so you could argue for or against the existence of God. But since then, along the various theistic traditions, there has developed uh, a new tradition or set of traditions. You can call it scientific naturalism or or whatever. Um, Marxism is a sub-tradition within it, just as um, Lutheranism is a sub-tradition within Christianity. Freudianism was a major contributor. Uh, Nietzsche was a major contributor. This is an alternative way of understanding the whole of reality that is contrasted with the Christian's way of understanding the whole of reality, or the Jews or the Muslims or whatever. And uh, you can't, by means of one simple short argument, get someone to change their entire worldview. Well, okay. So, how does it follow? But how how should does it follow that we should respect? I don't respect Nazism, which is an entire worldview, or godless atheistic communism. If I'm on that side, you know, which is an entire worldview. That it's an entirely different worldview, and I can't argue the other person out of it by any short argument. Why does it follow from that that I should respect and tolerate rather than regard as deeply wrong? And and if you like Dawkins, you think it's pernicious. Why should I respect this stuff that I regard as pernicious and deeply wrong? Well, those are two really different questions. I agree. (laughs) If something is pernicious, it should not be respected. It should be argued against, controlled by whatever means are not as pernicious as the perniciousness that you're trying to wipe out. (laughs) Uh, If it's a matter of genuine intellectual disagreement, conversation is the way to go. I had a wonderful discussion with Richard Dawkins over breakfast. We reached an impasse. 
but I intend to keep looking at his argument against the existence of God until I think I can write him uh, a response that will make sense to him as to why it's unacceptable. I agree with you that conversation is the way to go. I mean, don't you, don't you think conversation is the way? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're going to sl- we, we should have Habermas on to talk about the importance mm-hmm. of conversation and respect. And I, I can respect a view like Nancy's that finds the the the. Uh, the world meaningful uh, that 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 has has a sense that that you can be quiet and learn things uh, from God. I, I can't quite bring my mind around to that, but I can certainly respect it, and that's far different from respecting people that want to ban the teaching of uh, evolution. Right, in Nancy. On that note of mutual respect, we're going to have to thank you for joining us. It has been a delight. Thank you so much. Our guest has been Nancy Murphy, professor of philosophy at the Fuller Theological Seminary, co-author most recently of Did My Neurons Make Me Do It? Philosophical and Neurobiological Perspectives on Moral Responsibility and Free Will. So, John, what did you, what did you learn today? Well, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation with uh, Nancy. I thought she's a very interesting person. And and it reminded me of my own struggles when I was an undergraduate, uh, not when I was a graduate student so much as her, but when I was an undergraduate, I struggled uh, to, f- to find some, some way of, of putting all the things I wanted to believe and uh, felt I should believe and had believed and was learning together and uh, learned a lot about different world religions, thinking maybe to be a Hindu or to be a Buddhist would solve everything. Uh, had had a had a run at liberal Christianity, Paul Tillich, and so forth and so on. Came to a much different, settled view than Nancy, but but I really respect uh, her motivations and uh, and the doxastic stew that gave rise to the interesting person she has become. Fancy word, doxastic stew. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with. I mean, I went through a similar thing. I mean, at Notre Dame, I tried very hard, very very hard to believe. I. And not just trying to convince myself by argument, but listening in quiet moments. You know, <laughs> I, I tried that a lot, and it and it led to the complicated stew of of beliefs and attitudes I have toward religion now, which are highly complicated. I don't have a simple dismissive attitude. But one last thought: I do think that in this faith, this conflict between science, religion, and faith, that religion does something for us that science can't do on its own. It gives us narratives that kind of construe our lives in in meaningful terms, and one of the things that the secular humanities haven't done enough is to try to narrate human life in ways that are morally uplifting and life-affirming, and we need to do that. We need to, if you're going to be a secularist, uh, but I think that's a job for reason, for a human reason to do, to narrate human well, life. You know, one person who's who's worked very hard on that is Dan Dennett, although he may be a little over top, maybe in his recent book on religion, I don't know. Uh, I think those remarks are probably more directed at Dawkins. He really is trying to put together a, a, a coherent narrative that brings a lot of things together. I really respect that. Yeah, I think you're right. And for the final word, we turn to that faithful voice of reason, Ian Scholes, the 62nd Philosopher. Ian Scholes, when Charles Darwin's Origin of Species was first published in 1859, religious types immediately recognized its threat to faith. Not only in the book's insistence that life was not fixed, never mutating, but in its implication, which Darwin never stated, that if animals change and evolve over time, so do and so have humans. Darwin formed much of what came to be his theory from the observations he made during his famous five-year voyage on the Beagle. Darwin's memoir of that voyage became a bestseller. Between the publication of that book and Origin, more than 20 years passed. What took so long? Well, Darwin was a sick man for most of his adult life. The nature of his illness has been a matter of conjecture, ranging from Chagas disease to lactose intolerance to plain old hypochondria. 
Most theories suggest that it was a combination of physical and psychosomatic disorders. His symptoms included flatulence, diarrhea, rashes, vomiting, dizziness, heart palpitations, and, most telling, an intolerance for the weight of books. Whenever he read a book, he first had to rip it up in sections to make it light enough for him to read which leads to my personal hunch that it took him so long to write Origin because it was too darn heavy for him. He knew his ripples would create a tsunami. He didn't want to deal with it. He spent those years painstakingly gathering evidence, working only four hours a day. He worked in secret, sending his notes only to a few close friends. He procrastinated. It wasn't until a man named Alfred Russell Wallace published a paper on the introduction of species that Darwin was finally forced to finish his book. According to anti-Darwinist Andrew J. Bradbury, quote, illness provided a mighty shield behind which Darwin could hide rather than having to enter the public forum to argue for his ideas, unquote. When the book was finally published and was attacked, Darwin did not defend it, but watched from the sidelines as his defenders, among them T.H. Huxley, nicknamed Darwin's bulldog, went after the attackers for him. It seems that Darwin was a good husband, though his devout wife Emma was frequently dismayed by his theories, and loving father, but was he a secret atheist, as many critics have surmised? Darwin was cagey about his religious beliefs. At an after-dinner conversation, he once asked guests why they called themselves atheists. He preferred the word agnostic, a term coined by his friend T.H. Huxley. A guest replied that agnostic was but atheist writ respectable, and atheist was only agnostic writ aggressive. Darwin responded, why should you be so aggressive? Perhaps Darwin was what we might call today passive-aggressive. In his autobiography, however, we do find these strong words, quote, we overlook the probability of the constant inculcation and belief in God on the minds of children producing so strong an effect on their brains not yet fully developed that it would be as difficult for them to throw off their belief in God as for a monkey to throw off its instinctive fear and hatred of a snake, unquote. After his death in 1892, his widow Emma and son Arthur had those words removed from the first edition of the autobiography, but they were finally restored in the 1958 edition, which may indicate that books like species can change over time. I gotta go. Ian Shows, the only man who can solve a philosophical problem in 60 seconds. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2007. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Special thanks to Devin Strolovich, Daniel Elstein, Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, and Mark Stone. Philosophy Talk is sponsored in part by Powell City of Books, on the web at powells.com. Support also comes from the Templeton Foundation. And from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.